My name is Shandy Chernow, and you're listening to the Shandyland Podcast. I have for you today a very special food allergy guest. Her name is Linda Mitchell. She is the interim CEO of the Allergy and Asthma Network and the founder of Kids with Food Allergies. Linda, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I really do appreciate joining you here today and telling you a little bit of my story. Now, you have done something that many of our listeners dream of doing. You had a food allergy child, and he is now 32 years old. You made it through the kid parts. You've transitioned Mm -hmm. his food allergy care to him. Tell me the story of when you became a food allergy mom and kind of how that impacted you. Absolutely. And yes, he's doing really well. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, so I I became Sorry a mom. For calling out his age, but it's important for okay. allergy moms <laughs> out there that he made it. You know, it's good. Well, I think what I learned through my different roles in the food allergy world is that moms of younger kids want to see success stories. And so it's really important um, to share his story so that people can see that, you know what? We're going to make it. My son or child or daughter is going to be just fine. And I just need to be prepared for anaphylaxis and promptly treat epinephrine and make sure I work with every care provider that comes in contact with him or her so I can make sure that his his or her world is safe. And, um, and so that's where um, I feel like sharing the fact that he's an, an adult living on his own and doing very well is important. But to get back to where I got started, he was he was born and actually he was born with a birth defect that had a 50% mortality rate. I don't share that very often. Oh my gosh. But yeah, but he he actually I didn't know I didn't know that this was going to happen when he was born. So he was immediately taken away from me. He was stabilized in in a NICU and then transported 90 miles away to a university NICU that had all the capabilities for surgery that he needed. And so um, there I was, a new mom, first time mom, and I didn't even know if I was going to see him alive again. So that kind of set my world in terms of being a mom and dealing with life-threatening situations. (sighs) So I I don't think about it too much because it was pretty shot, you know, it was it was a very unbelievable situation to be in. Um, but he made it through. He had emergency surgery before I even made it to the hospital with him oh uh, to see him. And then um, he he stabilized in about a month, got off a ventilator and he came home with me. And the doctor said to me, um, he's fine. He's fixed. And so you're good. And um, and I thought, hmm, because he was born with, um, it, he had a condition called congenital diaphragmatic hernia, which is a hole in the diaphragm. So his intestines were actually up on the left side of his chest and his lung over on that left side did not grow. It was a little nub. And his other lung was only 60% of its normal size. And that's why these babies die because they don't have enough lung to breathe. And even today, the mortality rate for that condition is sadly not much improved. There's some fetal surgery that's available, but in any case, um, so I- But you didn't know before he was born? No, no, this was 30 years ago. So um, they had no inkling that this was going to happen. I would have been, had a C-section and I would have delivered in a in a tertiary care center or a major medical center so that they were ready for him. But that how didn't did, happen. How did they know when he was born? Just out of curiosity. They 
you know, sometimes it's the grace of God. And he was, he was born, he turned blue immediately. And the, the nurses had just gone through a training session on identifying children with diaphragmatic hernia the week before. Oh my God. So Ooh. he came, isn't that, it still gives me chills. Yeah. He, 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 he um, came out and his chest was convex. It was kind of dented in and they knew that this was not uh, right. And so they just ran out of the room with him. And, um, and actually, oh gosh, this has you must nothing... have died a little right that moment. It, you know? it was. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when, you know, they just put him in an isolate and took him in an ambulance and drove him 90 miles away. It was pretty devastating. Yeah. Um, but, you know, thankfully, everything worked as good as it could. But when he came home, even though they were telling me everything's fixed, I knew that he didn't have normal lung size. And long story short is I did breastfeed him and he wasn't tolerating breast milk right from the start. I knew that there was an issue there, but I didn't know what to do about it. And so I kept trying to breastfeed him. And then um, as it turned out, he had really severe reflux. And um, at the time, if you had a Gerber baby, the doctors didn't think you had a child with reflux. They always thought this was 30 years ago. So they thought reflux babies were failure to thrive babies. Mm -hmm. And so they just mostly just told me to just, just don't worry about it. Just be a mom and, <laughs> and just do your best. And uh, so, but then he started, he started going into anaphylaxis. He started aspiration pneumonia. He started having and uh, asthma attacks requiring hospitalization, none of which I was familiar about. This was by the time he was six to nine months old. And they finally said, you know, something's going on here. He's got significant allergies. Um, so, so that's kind of what took me on that path. It was a very frightening first year full of major ups and downs. Um, and, it, you know, other surgeries that had to happen, eight hospitalizations. And, um, and so I had a lot of, um, you know, traumatic experiences that first year of life. And of course he did too. But once we got him diagnosed, then he turned into a happy little baby, but he still had, he still had his allergies and the doctors didn't really know anything about it. Remember it was 30 years ago. I keep saying that, but it was a different time. And um, I finally, just when he was hospitalized, I, I said, I want to see an allergist. I want to see one today. And I named the person who happened to be my neighbor, who I didn't know from Adam, but I, he was somebody who I knew was a pediatric allergist. And I thought, I want to see him today. And that man, I think I told him many times, he saved Matt's life because he listened to the story from beginning to end and he pieced it all together like a puzzle. And that's so important for doctors to like look at the holistic person. And, um, and so he said, I think, and he it described, I think his reflux is so bad. It's causing his aspiration pneumonia. It's triggered asthma in him and he's got significant food allergies. And we've got to figure this out together to get him on a path to health. And so he was trying things that at the time they weren't doing, like he was trying inhaled nasal steroids. I think it was nasal. Yeah. Inhaled steroids with him so that they would try to, I mean, inhaled steroids for asthma was sort of early at that time, 30 years ago. So we were really trying some interesting things and he, he would, he would say be available with epinephrine because there wasn't a whole lot of dispensing of EpiPens at the time. And so if I needed him, he was just down the street and he would offer to come up and inject him. It was crazy. Um, so crazy. yeah, it really was. Uh, so that sort of made me, you know, an empowered advocate for my son. 
And it made me look for, for my own research. My background's in health information management informatics. I was very familiar with reading literature. And so I would hire babysitters and go in to the hospital library and just try to figure this out because I wasn't getting answers from my doctors. And so, um, so anyhow, you know, but, but in any case, we, um, we were on this journey together and, um, and I was looking for these answers. It was before the internet really, but in, I got a computer, I got online, I started meeting some moms who had children with food allergies and AOL chat rooms. They don't even exist anymore, do they? <laughs> and, um, and my uh, first one chat of them rooms were prodigy. So I hear were, you. Yeah, it was CompuServe, AOL, Prodigy. And so I met this librarian from Southern California. And she said, I'm going to start, if you work with, work with me, I'll start a Yahoo group. And I said, okay, fine. So that was kind of the beginning of my journey, becoming um, kind of a moderator for an online listserv for families raising children with food allergy. And because I couldn't work because of his, you know, his tenuous health issues, I started going to graduate school. It was a remote kind of learning thing. And, um, and I started doing research with that. And I started to basically, when I came out of graduate school, I pretty much had a business plan to take this fledgling listserv because I saw its growth and potential and the fact that people needed that kind of mom-to-mom -mom connection. And that's what came to be Kids with Food Allergies, which was launched in 2005. So that's how I became the founder of Kids with Food Allergies. And, um, and then we kind of grew it. I had a wonderful group of moms that I worked with who, um, you know, they just worked with me. They, they believed in it and they got it off the ground with me. And then we just kind of kept growing it and growing it. And that kind of is where we started. I'll stop there in case you have any questions. No, no, no. That's, it, that's great. How how big uh, has kids with food allergy kind of peer support groups gotten to? Well, by the time I um, I left in 2018, it was about I want to say 45,000 members. Wow. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, it was 40,000 before we merged with the AFA, the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America. And then I stayed for another five years and I left it in good hands with a, a lot of the people that were moms who worked for me, who became employees of AFA. So it was great. That's so it, it's so amazing. Why is it so important for people to have kind of peer support groups for these types of things that they're going through? Oh my gosh, that's such a an important question because... The doctors and the healthcare professionals, they can come at it from a really important evidence-based perspective on how to, you know, tell you how to treat it, prevent it, all those kind of things. But the practical day-to-day -day support is something that unless you live that condition, you don't know how to live day-to-day -day with that. And so that's why I really believed in what I was doing, because what I was trying to do is create an online community that gave moms a trustworthy place to come for that peer support. But then we had a medical advisory board and we created content that was evidence-based, meaning that it was in alignment with best practices and the literature and things like that. And so the, uh, the volunteers who were moderating the community could actually give really good information that was in alignment with what our medical advisors were telling us and we were putting in writing and putting on the website. I think part of the thing that gets kind of overlooked in, I guess, all food allergies, but particularly when you have a kid with food allergies is the feelings that are associated with it. When your kid has a reaction, mm -hmm. there's a guilt factor. I mean, my kids don't have, my, my older son had food allergies when he was littler, but mostly it's me who's problematic. 
but there's a guilt factor when they have a reaction that I don't know that, you know, the doctors are really talking to the moms about because the kid is the patient. And I don't know that the moms really want to, ad- maybe not admit, maybe that's not the word I'm quite looking for, but they don't necessarily know that, you know, every other mom out there with kids with food allergies is having the same exact feeling and that it's okay and that it's normal and yeah, that these things are going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember certain discussion threads that just kind of went on and on. And the two were, why do I hesitate to give epinephrine? Mm-hmm. And then, and then basically the aftermath of anaphylaxis. And especially if we have young kids, they get over it really quick. The next day, they don't even remember, um, hopefully. And then, but the moms, you know, they, they are in a traumatic response to what they witnessed, what they saw, what, you know, went right, what went wrong. And, you know, you go into the analysis of how did this happen? And the guilt factor, if, you know, maybe you accidentally gave a child something that they shouldn't have had. Um, But, but yeah, so we we had a lot of mom to mom support regarding that because it is really important to validate people's feelings and to make sure that they understand that, you know, it happened, learn from it. You know, what can you learn going forward? Forgive yourself if you had any role in it, but it's really important that you just move forward and just keep keep the faith and keep moving, you know, keep keep teaching your child in an age appropriate way to you know, what went right? And and how can you celebrate what happened? Because there was a lot, obviously a lot of things that went right, because everything turned out okay. What a great perspective there. I mean, even now, you know, I'm 45 years old. When I have a reaction, there's a debate that happens in my head. Is this really a reaction? Do I really mm-hmm. need an EpiPen? Do I really need to go to the hospital? You know, and as many times as I have said on this podcast and educational sessions to my, if you're wondering if you need the EpiPen, do it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I've said that so many times. And yet when it happens to me, I, I, I struggle with it. Do I really need it? My partner's like, Shandy, listen to yourself, right? How many times, have, what would you tell someone else in the same exact situation? But Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. There goes my dogs. <laughs> Well, Liberty came here with, you know, she's sitting right here in case you guys hear her groan. Uh, Yeah, no. So it's just so interesting how little people kind of talk about the feelings behind it. It's the reason I always ask, right? How did it affect you, mom, right? Going through all these things, because I just don't think that people recognize that their own feelings are normal feelings that every other, you know, mom is out there having, whether it's about food allergies or otherwise parent, I should say, I shouldn't, I shouldn't put it all on moms, parents. Yeah. So you, so absolutely, you you know, you, you just have to learn from it, but I, I know that there's many times where, you know, why do I hesitate to give epinephrine? It's a lot of reasons why, you know, a lot, one of them is you don't want to believe that this could possibly be what you think it is. And that's why you have to get over those fears and just go ahead and inject. So definitely that's true. And it's amazing how much better you feel, how quickly with that stuff. It's like magic. (laughs) It is. It's a miracle drug. Yeah. It is magic. It's so cool. Um, all right. So then you kids with food allergies merged with, uh, allergy and asthma, 
Asthmanology Foundation of America. Thank you. Foundation. I'm like, I know there's an F. What's the F? Yeah. So that merged together. And then at some point you handed over the reins and found yourself at Allergy Asthma Network. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I had been running an online community, which was, that was my passion. That was my heart. And I put a lot into it and I was tired. Um, You know, merging with another organization has a lot of advantages, but it's a lot of change because you have two of everything and you have to make sure everything works synchronously together. So, um, so after five years of being part of AFA, Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America, I just thought it was time for me to take a break. So I did, and it was lovely. Um, I slept in in the day. I just did stuff that was fun. I took a good year plus off and traveled a bit and really enjoyed my time off. And then um, I went to the Academy, the Allergy Academy of Quad AI, or Azen and I, and I ran into Tanya Winders, who was running Allergy and Asthma Network at the time. And she said, well, what are you doing? And I said, nothing. And she said, well, do you want to come to work? And I said, no, not really. <laughs> and um, and she said, well, when you're ready to do some work, so um, let me know. And she, I stayed in touch with her and she said, well, can you help me build a new website? We're ready for a new website. And I said, yeah, I can, I can work with your team on that. So I went in just to project manage a website, then COVID hit. And, um, and I stayed on to just support the organization in a bigger way. So that's how I kind of unintentionally got back into the allergy and asthma space. It's funny how that happens, isn't it? So, so yeah. what are the initiatives happening at Allergy Asthma Network now? Well, um, you know, because of COVID and the, um, the, light, the light it's shown on health equity and disparities, we've been doing a lot of work in the health disparities space. So, um, so we have every, every missionary, education, outreach, advocacy, and research, we are looking at it through the lens of health equity. And um, with research in particular, I believe in patients being involved, caregivers being involved. And so we, we actually did two, it's called PCORI, Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, PCORI Engagement Awards, where we set up a virtual conference series for the Black community with asthma to talk to them um, about COVID, um, but it wasn't somebody like me doing it. It was it was a whole group, a patient advisory group of Black patients who drove the agenda for it, who picked the speakers. We had a, a PI, a main lead on it, who was Dr. Graham, who was a wonderful Black pulmonologist who just was is charismatic and he just did a wonderful job. And we we built trust with that community. We had pastors speaking. It was great. Patients speaking. It was great for six uh, sessions. And um, and then we thought, this is so successful. Let's do it for the Hispanic Latino community. And so we did a similar virtual conference series for the Hispanic Latino community and built trust with them. And that has helped um, really kind of set our um, capabilities to do more for both communities and in engaging them in research, which is really important. We want to make sure that research results are relevant to the community, to the entire community. Um, And so we want to make sure that that happens. And this is our way of contributing to that. And then education materials, we have them translated into Spanish. We focus on health literacy, which means that we bring complex topics into a more um, easy to read natural language reading style. So we're doing a lot of work like that. Um, we've 
We've built several microsites, one for biologic medications for people with asthma and other conditions that can benefit by those. So they can learn more about them. It's a very complicated topic. We build another website on um, atopic dermatitis and skin of color, which is um, eczema and skin of color because um, doctors train on a lot on white skin and they don't know what these look like. And patients don't know that what they might have is eczema because it doesn't look the same as on white skin. So we built that. Um, we, we actually, let's see, what else do we do? We've done some other fun stuff. Um, and I say fun because it's challenging to really put this all together. It's like a puzzle. Um, but we just launched a chronic urticaria toolkit um, because there's so many people that have hives and they don't realize that there's, there, it could be a chronic condition for which there's management and treatment. It often goes undiagnosed for sometimes years. And it's a very sad condition to have because it's uncomfortable, debilitating, and it makes people very self-conscious. Well, and people have a tendency just to over, over Benadryl themselves with it, right? Yeah. And there's, the doctors, al- there's better alternatives. Yeah. yeah. One of the doctors I had on the show was, was focused on, on uticaria and, uh, I didn't know what that was before that podcast, by the way. And now I'm yeah. like, oh, hives, I know that word. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. You know, you, as you were talking about your son, you were saying, you know, it's a, it, it was a different time. And while I agree with you, I think some of these, and not some, all of these initiatives that you're talking about are so important because while it is a new time now, there is still so much out there in terms of lack of information and doctors who don't necessarily know you know, asthma stuff or allergy stuff, specifically food allergy stuff. And so there's a lot of misinformation even coming from well-meaning doctors to patients across communities. Um, And so until you kind of get those resources online, or if you luck out and have a doctor who happens to be really up to date on on the above topics, you know, you still kind of find yourself lost in the dark a little bit, feeling, you know, alone and, and, and without the right resources. Yeah, it's very true. And a lot of people just go to a primary care provider who are wonderful for, mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of things. Um, but sometimes you do need a specialist to help you with more treatment options that PCPs may not be aware of. And, you know, the, the one thing that we have to keep in mind is I live on the East Coast. I don't know where you live, Shandy, but you know, we have you. So you probably have access to, you know, teaching hospitals and universities and things like that. And the truth of it is, is that a lot of people are living in rural areas and they don't have access to this. They might need to go five hours to see a specialist. And those but even are so, related. I mean, maybe less so in pulmonology, but on the allergy side, I mean, I hear everyday stories of people who go to an allergist, get a skin prick test, and they get handed a list of 14 things that they're now anaphylactically allergic to that they're never allowed to eat again, that they've never had a reaction to. Yeah. And that's, that's if why you eat it yesterday, you can eat it today, honey. You're like the, the, the quality of life impact that things like that happen. It's not okay. You know? So I love the initiatives that you're talking about, particularly in the, in the BIPOC communities. I think it's awesome. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. That's very cool. So something interesting happened in the end of 2022, and I want to get your take. I know that you guys were a bit involved in some of the complaints, but Southwest Airlines, uh, they're they're in a world of a world of issues right now, I guess. But uh, they had taken away the ability for peanut allergy uh, people specifically to pre-board, I believe, because they stopped serving peanuts on the planes. Mm-hmm. 
talk to me about what the impact of that was, what your thoughts are on how they should do it. And why don't we just let all people with food allergies pre-board because anybody on an airline can eat any kind of food and leave that residue behind. Well, that's what airlines should be doing. But Southwest took the liberty of thinking if they took peanuts off airplanes that people didn't need to pre-board. And the problem with that is it's not just people with peanut allergies that need to pre-board and clean down their seats because they could have other allergies than peanut. So simply taking that food off of the planes on the airlines part doesn't keep people from carrying food onto the plane or them serving things like milk. My son's allergic to milk. He's never been allergic to peanuts. So if you have little kids coming in and milk has spilled on an airline seat, you still need to be cleaning up the area and making sure that it's safe for your child. So that was why we felt that it was important to not only just remind in a you know, way we did with that, you know, it's you need to allow people with peanuts to pre peanut allergy to pre-board, but it's not just peanut allergy that you need to allow people to pre-board. It's anyone with a food allergy who needs that extra time to wipe down the seats, clean the tray tables, things like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I am allergic to peanuts, but not just peanuts, right? So you take peanuts off the plane, people are still eating other things, yeah. right? Now my shellfish allergy is less likely to affect me on a plane. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody like whip out a package of shrimp, but you know, the, the, the tree nuts thing, there's trail mix everywhere. Like there's all sorts of allergens that people don't necessarily realize they're leaving all this residue behind and somebody can be allergic to literally anything. Just let them go clean stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're hoping that we'll have a favorable outcome. Um, my recall, it, I'm trying to remember because it seems like it was weeks ago, but um, I, I, I believe December <laughs> A lot 15th, has happened at the, in the end of 2022. I, I, exactly. I believe December 15th, um, Southwest did allow people with peanut allergy to pre-board again, but still they're not allowing people with other food allergies to pre-board. So we're still working on submitting, um, I mean, you know, wouldn't you just complaints say regarding that? Like, even if you don't have a peanut allergy, but you have other food allergies, wouldn't the advice be to just say that you have a peanut allergy? Oh, or am I, well, am I, I being kind of unethical there? <laughs> I don't know. But, but, uh, but the truth of it is, is that everybody does need to pre-board. Yeah. Who needs it? Who needs that time to clean off their trays and tables because of a food allergy, a real food allergy? Totally. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I just mean, you know, if the airline's going to let you pre-board for peanuts and you have milk in your example... Why, why argue the point in that moment? Just, yep, it's peanut. Let's go. You know? You're like, I'm not agreeing with that out loud. Uh, okay, so I'm going to move on then. Um, tell me some tips that you have as a mom of an adult food allergy person in getting them to start that own self-owning the process of, you know, talking to people, supporting themselves, keeping themselves safe carrying their own medication? Because I think that transition is hard for a lot of moms to kind of let go of the control, trust the kid. It is. Well, I have to, I'm going to give a plug to um, one of the subcommittees of the Quad AI's Adverse Reaction to Food Committee. They worked on these wonderful handouts that just came out within the past two or three months on ages and stages related to um, managing food allergies, getting children to learn what age appropriate things they should be expected to at a whole life cycle of their, their childhood and early adulthood. And um, for anybody who may not be familiar of them, I think you can just Google um, allergy, asthma, immune, 
four A's and an I, and then food allergy handouts, and they'll probably come up in the Google search results, but they're really wonderful. And I believe they're in Spanish as well as English, which is terrific. Um, so, but, but back when I was going through it, basically we had to just figure it out. Um, but what the, the bottom line is you need to start in an age appropriate way, just introducing the child into self-management and keep loosening up the proverbial apron string so that they get more and more independent as they grow up. And so, you know, at two or three years old, my son didn't know a whole lot, except my mommy will have to tell me that that's okay to eat, or I can't eat that without checking with my mommy. And that was all he needed to know. But then when he got to be four years old, you know, he would say, you know, did my mom approve that? And, and so there was, you know, just certain things that you, you just kind of grow into as you get older, you know, the ep carrying the epinephrine, keeping it close by, always reading labels, the label reading, you can start to introduce early, but of course, until they can read, they're not going to be able to help. So all that age appropriate stuff is just so important. So that when they get to be, you know, middle school, you know, you don't want to be at every school party and things like that, because they don't want you around. Right. And you need to know that. Um, and then once they get into high school, they definitely don't want you around. Uh, so you need to kind of figure out how they can self manage their food allergy, be assertive in school, things like that. You know, 504 plans certainly have their place and, and stuff. But also, the child needs to learn how to be self-managing and responsible for his or her own food allergies. So, um, so an example of something that I did was, you know, because of milk allergy, milk is in everything. Um, it was really limiting in terms of what restaurants that he could go with his friends. And so, what I did with him was, we so I said, let's go to restaurant X, restaurant Y, and let's see if you can eat there safely and know how to navigate that on your own. And then try to negotiate that with your friends. So when they said, let's go get pizza, he would say, well, how about if we go to Chipotle? I mean, I don't know if it's safe now, but back then that was a safe option for him. And, um, and so that was the way that he was able to do it on his own. He was able to offer alternatives that were still acceptable to his peers, but he was managing his food allergy and his safety in an age-appropriate way. That's awesome. Great advice. What do you think is next in the food allergy world or asthma world? Wow. Um, well, I mean, food allergy treatments are always an exciting thing that weren't available. I know, you know, 20 years ago, I said to my son, I said, I know you're not going to have to live your whole life with your food allergy. I don't know when that will be, but you won't have to live your whole life with a food allergy. And we're here. There's a lot of children who've been treated for food allergy, who've been able to, you know, go on and live their lives. And they don't even need to listen to this podcast anymore, which is wonderful. Um, so um, I'm really excited and happy that those alternatives are available. And then the epinephrine treatment options are changing. There's two or three that are nasal sprays that are in the FDA approval process and a sublingual option. Um, and they're all going to come to fruition probably within the next year or two if the FDA approval yeah. process goes well. Those are just going to be, I think, really important because they give patients and people alternatives that they can choose from. I think it's pretty amazing. So how can people connect with you and Allergy Asthma Network online? Well, we're at allergyasthmanetwork.org. We're on all the social media um, accounts, even TikTok. And, um, and so we, we have a really nice staff that work there and try to help whoever we can. And so I welcome you to check us out. 
we we do have content on food allergy and epinephrine and anaphylaxis. Um, we don't have recipes, so we're not the place to come for recipes. But if you do need support or you need information, we have good and solid information to get you started on your journey. And we welcome you to stay in touch with us and be part of our community. Nice. Uh, and then just to finish off, I always go with my favorite little game of two truths and a lie. So I'm very okay. excited to hear uh, so three facts about yourself, one of which is not true in no particular order, and don't tell us the answer. Oh, don't tell you the answer. Okay. So I just for everybody's knowledge, I live on the East Coast. I think I mentioned that. So here's the first one is I lived in California for 10 years. The second one is I love Indian food. And the third is my mom and I share the same birthday. Yeah. My mom and my grandma share the same birthday. That's kind of a How fun. about that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to figure out which one of those is your lie. I really appreciate this conversation. I think it's super informative for people and uh, it's always helpful to get that. You gave really good advice today. So thank you for that. Oh, uh, thank you. Everybody who's listening, thank you so much for sticking around. As always, this has been the Shandyland podcast and we'll talk to you soon.